Chapter Twenty of A King in Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. A King in Babylon by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter Twenty. Dinner that night was a melancholy meal. Davis had been strangely silent ever since we emerged from the tomb, and I wonder now that I did not guess the reason. My only excuse is that I was myself too deeply shaken to observe anything closely. Creel was still obviously agitated by his experience, in spite of an effort to appear at ease, an effort which flickered out almost at once. Ma, Creel, and Molly had not yet recovered from the shock of Jimmy's disappearance, and I believe that they suspected something more had happened, though they asked no questions. Perhaps they were afraid to. As for Mademoiselle Roland, she was curiously pale, languid, and distrait, with no curiosity whatever, apparently, as to the occurrences of the afternoon. I started to describe to her the opening of the tomb, but I stopped after the second sentence, for it was obvious she did not hear me, and I had a curious feeling that she somehow knew all about it. Indeed, her eyes were so dull and vacant as she glanced up from time to time, that I doubted if she either saw or heard any of us, except dimly and confusedly, as though we were miles away. And as I looked at her, a sudden thought startled me. Could it be that she was addicted to some drug? Could that be the explanation of her pale face and languid air and lacklustre eyes? The thought troubled me, and yet left me strangely relieved. If that was all, well, it would be deplorable, of course, but it was at least understandable. Only Jimmy was anything like himself. He was almost feverishly so, and I found his careless unconcern and misplaced jests and determined gaiety more disquieting than the deepest depression would have been and then that queer look in his eyes of bravado of defiance surely the heat had touched him how else could he sit there rattling away like that how else could a man who had gone through what he had gone through that afternoon reel off one after another ostensibly for mademoiselle roland's benefit those stale moth-eaten stories of the new york studios stories which had been common to all studios since studios began more especially since mademoiselle roland did not smile did not even listen it got on all our nerves, but it was Creel who broke down first. "'For heaven's sake, Jimmy,' he blurted out, "'stop that silly patter. Those stories are a thousand years old.' "'I know it,' agreed Jimmy cheerfully, "'but I thought perhaps they'd amuse Mademoiselle Roland.' "'Look at her, man. Look at her,' said Creel, still more irritably. "'Does she seem amused? Why, they'd beat chestnuts to Sekenyan Ray.' "'Sekenyan Ray?' echoed Mademoiselle Roland, looking up suddenly with the first appearance of interest she had shown. Who was he? A king of ancient Egypt, answered Creel. It's his mummy the professor has found over there in the tomb. A mummy? Really? The professor has found a block of granite, Creel explained grimly, with a football carved on top of it, which he says contains the missing link. We'll see tomorrow when he opens it whether it is with or without a tail. You are jesting, the girl protested, and turned her eyes inquiringly upon Davis but that worthy refused to be drawn into the discussion and went on silently with his meal though a moment later i caught him watching mademoiselle roland furtively had the same thought occurred to him i wondered that had occurred to me he was something of a physician i knew doubtless his long sojourns in the east had familiarized him with drugs and their effects i resolved to probe him a little when i had the chance again silence fell like a pall over our party Mademoiselle Roland asked no more questions. Jimmy seemed to have been effectually squelched. The blanket of gloom was so thick it was almost suffocating. Creel got through his meal first, as he almost always did. "'I'll want you, Princess, first thing in the morning in your harem togs,' he said as he rose, "'and you, Jimmy, in your khaki.' 
and then he walked away to the tent where i saw him presently poring over the manuscript of his scenario by the light of the oil lamp i had gone in to get some tobacco and i tried to slip out without disturbing him but he heard me and looked up that you billy he asked come here a minute look at that and he held the back of his hand out under the light see that welt and i saw that there was an ugly red welt across the knuckles no wonder i dropped the torch eh and he laughed unpleasantly i stared down at the welt scarcely able to believe my eyes to be sure creel had hissed into my ear the statement that the torch had been knocked from his hand but i hadn't believed it i had credited it to the hysteria of the moment but here was tangible evidence but look here creel i protested nothing could have struck you there wasn't anything there to strike you even if there really was something in the corridor it was only a sort of gray cloud and it was too far away i know it broke in creel testily good heavens man do you suppose i haven't told myself all that a hundred times but there's the welt yes there was the welt there was no denying that you struck your hand against something i said at last against one of those pillars perhaps they have sharp corners or against that block of granite yes perhaps i did said creel ironically i wish i could think so but it happens that i know i didn't however let it go at that run along and he turned brusquely back to his manuscript i looked around for molly as i came out of the tent hoping to inveigle her into another tete-a-tete but she was nowhere in sight in fact there wasn't anybody in sight except the natives cleaning up the dinner things which seemed to me a little queer but i could only guess that everybody had found everybody else insufferable and had fled to their several quarters i didn't blame them i felt that way myself i felt in fact a sudden longing for the desert for its silence its solitude its imperturbability and instinctively i turned toward the edge of the oasis a moment later i almost fell over mustafa and jimmy allen seated in the shadow of a palm and deep in talk hello said jimmy in a tone that meant get out and i passed on with a nod but what could it be that he and mustafa were discussing so earnestly the lore of ancient egypt its customs and superstitions i laughed shortly then put the thought away after all what did it matter what did anything matter here was the desert silent immutable scornful of man and his petty troubles i drew a deep breath as i stood gazing out across it then i sat down with my back against a hummock of sand and lit my pipe and tried to think things over but it wasn't any use there wasn't anything to think over nothing to get hold of no place to start the only thing i seemed able to do was to ask myself questions i couldn't answer or whose answers i was afraid to think of how was it going to end what was going to happen that something was going to happen something shocking and decisive beside which all that had already happened would be mere child's play i never for an instant doubted how still the desert was how beautiful and menacing i pictured to myself the dim processions of caravans which had drifted across it for thousands and thousands of years out to this oasis and then on again on again and almost before they had passed the drifting sand had covered all trace of their passage and they were as though they had never been like snow upon the desert's dusty face that was old omar and i tried to recall the rest of the stanza but couldn't and then i wondered if there ever was snow on the desert's dusty face it seemed improbable my heart jumped suddenly into my throat for far out across the sand i fancied that i had seen something moving i strained my eyes through the darkness yes there it was coming nearer and then i saw it was a man and then with a sigh of relief i recognized the spare figure and white beard of our old egyptologist hello professor i called as he reached the oasis a little to my right been out for a walk 
That you, Billy? And he paused a moment. Yes, come over and sit down. I was surprised to find myself very anxious indeed for his company. He paused a moment longer in indecision, then, to my immense relief, came over and sat down beside me. I thought I knew your voice, he said, and took off the soft hat he always wore after dark, in place of his white helmet, and held his face up to the breeze. I smelt your pipe way out. It's remarkable how far the odor of tobacco carries sometimes. I fancied I smelled it tonight over there at the ruins. My pipe isn't that strong, I laughed. Have you been over there? Yes, I wanted to take another look at the tomb. I don't open a tomb every day. You didn't go by yourself, I gasped. Surely, why not? I had both torches. Queer thing, he added. Mine is working all right again. But to go over there alone. I wanted to be alone, he broke in impatiently. I can't do any real thinking with you fellows around. You're afraid of your own shadows. I winced at his tone. Look here, Professor, I said. Didn't you see anything over there this afternoon? I saw nothing unusual. You didn't see someone standing at the end of the corridor? Certainly not. Neither did you. Yes, I did, I said. A sort of gray shadow in front of that white wall. Davis threw back his head and laughed softly. That's just what I was saying, he cried, that you were afraid of your own shadow. It wasn't my shadow, I protested. Then it was Creel's, or mine. One of the simplest propositions of physics, Billy, is that there can be no shadow unless there is some more or less opaque body to cast it. Oh, I know, I said impatiently, and then I resolved to cast a bomb at him. Creel says something knocked the torch out of his hand. Nonsense, retorted Davis equably. He showed me tonight where he'd been struck, a red welt right across the knuckles. Davis wasn't so prompt with his answer this time. He combed his beard thoughtfully with his fingers for a moment, staring out across the sand. He struck his hand against something, he said at last. So I told him, I agreed eagerly, but he just laughed at me. Well, suppose what he says is true, Davis went on evenly. Suppose something did knock the torch from his hand. What of it? Why should we be frightened? The Egyptians believed that the tombs of the kings were defended by guardian spirits, and that it meant death to rifle or defile them. It was a belief which the kings themselves did everything they could to foster, for obvious reasons. But most of them have been rifled and defiled, and I've never yet heard of anybody dying of it. So tomorrow I open that sarcophagus. Even if I saw a guardian angel standing beside it ready to strike, I would still open it. There was something in his manner which sent a little chill over me. Then you think, I stammered, you think that some catastrophe will follow? No, I don't. My reason tells me that such a fear is absurd. But there is something deeper than reason, I began. No, there isn't, he broke in sharply. The moment you admit that, you set yourself adrift. You deliver yourself over, bound hand and foot, to all the old fears and superstitions which have come down to us through the ages, which are more or less born into our blood. It is just that sort of ignorance we've got to struggle away from. You talk as though you were trying to convince yourself, I said. I am, he admitted. Good Lord, man, it's in my blood, too. But I'd be ashamed to yield to it. I'd feel like a traitor to civilization. By heaven, we are traitors, every time we permit ourselves to yield to unreasoning fear. If any catastrophe does happen... Well, I asked as he paused. It's nonsense even to suppose such a thing, he said savagely, and got quickly to his feet. Good night, and he strode away between the palms. I filled my pipe again, feeling unaccountably cheered and heartened, and settled back for a final quiet smoke before turning in. Davis was a great old boy, and he was right. A man was a traitor who yielded to unreasoning fear. He was permitting himself to slip back toward the dark ages. 
He was making the fight just so much harder for the next generation, and every time he conquered, he was making that fight easier. He was helping to overcome the devils of ignorance and superstition. And just then I happened to glance aside, and there, at the edge of the oasis, not twenty yards away, stood the figure of a man. I had heard no sound, and seeing him there suddenly like that gave me an awful start. But I'm glad to say that I won that fight, for I fought back the impulse to jump to my feet and looked at him again, and recognized Jimmy Allen. He was gazing out across the desert toward the ruins as though expecting someone. At least that was the impression his attitude gave me. Once he took a few steps forward into the sand, and then thought better of it and came back, and stood there in the long grass, tense and expectant, staring out across the waste. At last I could stand it no longer, and I knocked out my pipe loudly against my heel. "'Why, hello, Jimmy,' I said, as he started round toward me at the sound. "'What are you doing out here?' "'What are you doing?' he demanded, with what seemed to me unnecessary fierceness, and he strode over and stood above me, in a manner which can only be described as threatening. "'I came out for a quiet smoke,' I said. "'I was just going to turn in. "'How long have you been there?' "'Oh, quite a while, ever since I stumbled over you and Mustafa back yonder. "'Have you—' "'Have you seen anyone?' he asked, peering down at me. "'Why, yes, I saw Davis.' "'Davis? He'd been over at the ruins, nosing around,' I explained. "'I saw him when he came back. He sat down and talked for a few minutes.' I could hear Jimmy's quick breath of relief. "'So it was Davis,' he said, and dropped to the sand beside me. "'Who did you think it was?' I demanded. "'I didn't know. I saw something moving out across the sand quite a while ago, and I thought—I fancied—' Anyway, I had a good notion to go over there and see for myself. Over to the ruins? Yes, and into the tomb. There's a fascination about it. He stopped and gazed out across the sand. It seemed to me that this was worth another pipe, so I filled up. Yes, there is a fascination about it, I agreed at last. But it's a fascination a fellow ought to fight against. Why? Jimmy broke in. I don't know, I stammered. It may lead too far. And Davis says that every time we yield to unreasoning fear, we're sliding back... "'And Davis is right,' rapped in Jimmy. "'It's you who are yielding to unreasoning fear, not I. "'You fear this fascination because it leads to the unknown, "'but why should one be afraid of the unknown?' "'I could only shake my head helplessly. "'Of course he was right. "'Only fools and cowards were afraid of the unknown. "'And yet there was something about his attitude, "'something morbid, something unhealthy. "'I feel that I shall never be afraid again,' "'Jimmy added after a moment. "'Never again, whatever happens.' "'So that was the change we had sensed in him.' He had shaken off fear. "'You mean that you've been afraid?' I asked. "'Oh, desperately. It wasn't the heat, Billy, that sent me off like that. It was fear. Fear and bewilderment. A sort of feeling that fate had brought me here after the lapse of centuries for some awful purpose of its own. I seemed to recognize this oasis. The first time I looked down into that excavation, it somehow looked familiar. When we dug out that ghastly mummy, I knew that I'd seen it before.' "'Of course you had seen it before,' I broke in. "'No, I hadn't. I'd never laid eyes on it till Creel and I dragged it out of that hole. "'It was manufactured in our workrooms about a month ago,' I pointed out. "'So if you mean you had seen it out here, or in some former existence, or anything of that sort, why, it's ridiculous.' "'I know it,' Jimmy agreed. "'Perhaps it was one like it. I suppose they all look alike. "'But the biggest shock was when we laid it on the sand, and I stared down at it and saw it change.' He passed his hand before his eyes and let the sentence trail away into nothingness. "'The trouble with you is,' I said brusquely, "'that this infernal picture has got on your brain. "'You've moiled over it so much that you are beginning to think it's true, "'and to imagine you really see what you're only supposed to see.' 
it makes your acting better than i ever knew it i'll say that but it must be blamed hard on your nerves you may be right jimmy agreed as a matter of fact i suppose you are right but all that was nothing to the sensation i had when i crawled through that hole this afternoon and it had nothing to do with the picture either i could see that you were scared i said scared scared isn't the name for it i was in a blue funk it was all i could do to claw my way through that hole because i knew clear to the bottom of my soul that it was my own tomb i was entering and that something was waiting for me inside i felt the desert chill strike into me and i snuggled back closer into the sand well was there i asked in a voice i tried vainly to make unconcerned yes answered jimmy in a low tone there was what was it i asked and all pretense had fallen away i had slipped back shamefully into unreasoning fear and my voice was only a hoarse whisper i don't know what it was answered jimmy quietly but i know that it took me by the hand as if in welcome and raised me from the place where i had fallen and led me through that narrow door and along that corridor to the spot where i lay buried and it said to me kneel here he broke off suddenly and rubbed his head bewilderedly there's a crook somewhere he said i can't think straight i can't disentangle reality from unreality it's all mixed up do you suppose i'm going mad billy mad i echoed nonsense man but there was a chill in my blood perhaps that was it my mind seems extraordinarily lucid he added and all my senses seem somehow more acute that's one reason i wanted to go over there to-night i could see things and hear things and smell things nonsense i said again and rose abruptly he'd be asking me to accompany him next you're going to bed that's where you're going we've all of us got a hard day ahead to-morrow and we'll need all the rest we can get come along he rose with an obedience that surprised me whether i'm mad or not he said as we started back there's one thing i'll promise you i'll never be afraid again End of chapter twenty